I'm encountering this issue a lot with film as well. Mm. Like, I'm trying to broaden my vocabulary of, like, what is the canon of film? And a lot of the canon of film, I'm like, I disagree. It's just not for me. And Mm. it's, like, it's really interesting to compare the work that's held up as canon versus the work that really resonates with me. And, like, the true path, I feel, is to dig into what really resonates with me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's still... someone decided... Yeah. A person decided what was quote-unquote canon. Yeah. And they had their perspective. I, I think that, like, time is a factor, too, though. Like, people don't consider... Like, something may be working in that time period, but, like, as you move forward in time, like, suddenly, like, values change, and suddenly it just doesn't hold up the same way. Like, I actually didn't watch Rocky for... Years and years and years and years. Like, I finally was like, oh, it's this seminal movie. I should watch Rocky. And by the time I... Like, I watched Rocky in 2017. And, like, you watch Rocky in 2017, you're like, what a horrible person. He's, like, abuses (laughs) this... Why is Adrian putting up with this garbage? Like, she's putting in all this emotional labor to this, like, awful person who's, like, mistreating her. Like, just doesn't work. But I'm sure, like, back in the 70s, it was, like... No one was thinking about the gender politics. They're it just like, wow. An amazing romance. What an, I mean, <laughs> it is a good underdog story, and it was probably one of the first underdog stories, but, you know, times change. <laughs> well, that and also, I think, uh, sometimes a story will be, like, something about a story, the, the, the format or tropes or something will be copied by every story that comes after. Mm-hmm. And so if you've seen everything that comes after, and then you go back and watch the original, unless someone, like drops in out of a helicopter to say, hey, this was the first movie to do that. If you don't know that, then it's like, oh, I've seen this before. Yeah. No, there's two things that I've watched recently that fall into that category. Like Casablanca is one that's just like, I still think it holds up. It's an interesting film. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's pretty solid. But just the volume of references that have been pulled out of that work are really bewildering. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Evangelion is another one where I rewatched it recently and then like, revisiting it with a lens of like the things that have come in the 20 years since Evangelion and all the things that was like Eva did that first or Eva evolved this in Hmm. such a profound way that's now just referenced super super widely and paid homage to in all of these other new new cartoons. (laughs) I still need to watch that. Good, it holds I'm up. I'm such a big mm-hmm. fan of Evangelion memes. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> They're my favorite memes, and I haven't even seen it. you got to. I know, I know. It's on Netflix now. Is it? Yeah, it's coming, I think. And the, it's a, the OG Ava. Oh, okay. Remastered right. or something. Right. I, mean, I don't know. It's worth it. I, I'll admit I need to catch up on Ava, too. Welcome, everybody, to The Trade Waiters. We read the Calvin and Hobbes 10th anniversary book by Bill Watterson. So, I mean, if you've read some Calvin and Hobbes, you can continue to listen to this episode because there'll be lots we can talk about. There's like not a lot of spoilers in Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> no, yeah, be, be gentle with me. I only read the first half of the book. I'm assuming the dad did it. But... Oh, <laughs> well, let me tell you, it was the mom the whole time. What? <laughs> Um, but like we're gonna probably make reference to a few things that are specific to this edition 
But I don't know, whatever. Calvin and Hobbes, everyone's ready to that, right? I assume. Yeah. Well, this is this yeah. is part of the thing that I want to discuss, and we can get into that oh, later okay. on. Of like, but uh, yeah, Calvin and Hobbes, woo. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really happy that we're doing this book. I was already telling Jonathan before we recorded that I like I was the biggest the biggest Calvin Hobbes fan as a child, and um, this has reminded me like how great this series is. Uh, I was so pleased to read this again. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's uh, jump in with a character-revealing question first, though, uh, so you can find out who we all are and that none of us are imaginary. <laughs> when you were a child, did you have a favorite toy that you either had the most imagination built around or something that you just took with you everywhere? And if so, what was it? <clears throat> this is how much I trust you guys. Uh, I guess all our listeners, too. It's just, it's just uh, the three of yeah, us. Yeah. No one else no is one listening else, in. This will never get out into the public. Um, I, uh, my name is Jeff Ellis, first of all. And uh, as a child, I had a blue bear that I named, I don't know, when I was maybe three years old. I don't even know how I came across this, but the name of this bear was Sister Gucci. That was the name of my bear. And I had that bear with me all the time, and I still have that bear on a shelf in my apartment right now um, with several other plush animals sort of to camouflage it. But yeah, I still have my childhood bear, and uh, and I, uh, we went on adventures. Uh, I had a very Hobbes-esque relationship with, with, uh, with this teddy bear So when I was very young. What you're saying is one of us could steal that bear and hold it ransom for 25 cents. Yes. And I would have to then steal your uh, toy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My name is Jam, and I had several stuffed animals that really meant a lot to me when I was young. Uh, I clicked a lot more with stuffed animals than any other type of toy. One that really stood out in my memory is a squirrel puppet. So it was actually like a puppet, and the name now eludes me, but I definitely had this squirrel puppet everywhere I went, and it was, uh, I would like make it talk, and you know, like I would, (laughs) it was a character, it was like a feature in our lives. And the other one, which was really important to me, was a red elephant named Anna, and it was just like a velvety red elephant that was like the most comforting toy that I had. And I carried that with me through university. And I think I still have it, but I haven't seen it in a while. I should (laughs) figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm Jonathan. And I had quite a few puppets when I was a kid. Uh, And uh, I was kind of a weird kid. I was always like inventing characters and coming up with stories. And nothing ever came with those. Uh, It doesn't sound like you at all, No, I know. Totally different person now. Uh, but my mom would sometimes make these characters into things. Mm. Some of my Halloween costumes as a kid were characters that I had to explain to every single person I met. Wow. <laughs> Which I was, of course, happy to do. Uh, and I kind of think maybe that was the point. Um, and uh, I had a puppet that was a character of mine called Junk Devil, which was a orange fluffy monster that lived in a junkyard there was a whole species of junk devils but this was the main one Uh, and I took this puppet with me everywhere Uh, I took it to bed with me every night Uh, eventually it got so 
worn out that it had to be replaced, but it had to be replaced with another junk devil. And then my mom came up with an elaborate scenario that it was the same one, which I don't think I actually believe, but I was willing to accept that. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I still have junk devil somewhere, but I don't know where. Uh, I want to see a comic about junk devil. No. <laughs> I've got better characters now. <laughs> more interesting ones. <laughs> so we can talk a little bit about uh, Bill Watterson, but honestly, there's not a lot to talk about because he is very much offline yeah. And, like, not much is known. I went and I read the Wikipedia article about him, and half of what was in that article was stuff that was, like, quotes from him from this book. Wow. <laughs> yeah, a mystery wrapped in a conundrum. Which is, I think, the way he likes it. <laughs> uh, he's from a small town called Chagrin Falls, Ohio, uh, which he still lives in. Calvin and Hobbes is the thing he's most well-known for, uh, which ran in newspapers from 1985 to 1995. And before that, he worked briefly doing political cartoons for the Cincinnati Post. But he said that he like didn't really know enough about local politics for that to be viable. So they fired him. <laughs> um, he also worked for a little bit in advertising or uh, and as an illustrator. But by far, the thing everybody knows him for is Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes has won basically every award. It's won multiple Eisners, multiple Harveys, uh, multiple Angoulême Awards. And uh, he has some very strong opinions about how his work is used, which I'm sure will come up when we talk about this book. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, uh, first impressions, which are probably not actually first impressions, <laughs> of Calvin and Hobbes. As I mentioned already, this is my second time, well, probably my 10th uh, time re reading this specific volume, the 10th anniversary book. I got this book when it first came out. I was super excited. I've, yeah, I've basically been reading Calvin Hobbes for my earliest reading memory uh, because it was 1985. I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I almost feel like in 1985, when I was five years old, my mom was like, hey, there's this comic in the newspaper about a boy with an imagination. It's like you. And I'd be like, let's see about that. And then it was my favorite comic for forever. <laughs> and I bought all the collections that came out through Scholastic. And I copied a lot of the things Calvin did. I had a cardboard box that was my time machine. And I mean, I would just totally take ideas from Calvin Hobbes and just act them out. And... Uh, yeah, this book was a big deal to me because I think at this point, this was published, when was this, like 1992 or Yeah, like it, it, this book was published in uh, 1995, I think. Oh, that's it. Yeah. So I was a teenager by then. Okay. And so I'd grown up reading Calvin when I was a child. And now I'm a teenager who's an aspiring cartoonist reading this book. And of course, the first chapter deals with his struggles with the newspaper uh, comics industry. And I remember vividly being at a family gathering and a family friend saying, oh, hey, Jeff, like, you're drawing comics. Maybe you'll be in the newspaper someday. And I remember being a, like, snarky 15-year-old being like, oh, well, actually, let me tell you about the newspaper comics and telling him way more information <laughs> than he wanted to know. And in hindsight, I forget who that was, but whoever it was, I'm very sorry about that. I was a snarky teenager. You didn't deserve that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, this was great to reread. And I'd actually forgotten that the essay at the beginning was actually so short. I was, my, my memory was that like half this book was his essay, 
but it's it's actually delightful that most of this was just random comics that he pulled in. And the other thing I've forgotten is I enjoyed that some of the comics he references, like he has little plates of the comics with notes. And some of the comics, you read the comic and then the note is like, I didn't like this comic very much. I didn't think it worked. And I sort of enjoy the fact that he's not just showcasing what he thinks is his best work. He's also showcasing what he thinks are his failures, even though... Like, I'm like, uh-huh, you didn't like that, Bill? Because mm, still a good comic, but... <laughs> yeah, anyways, I... Uh, yeah, this is great. Um, I, I'm going to stop gushing and let someone else talk. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a different experience of Calvin and Hobbes. I This is... It's interesting that we just had a conversation about canon, right? Yeah. I do think that Calvin and Hobbes is unequivocally and inarguably a major part of North American comics canon. And I think that is a title that it inarguably deserves. Like, it is a really strong comic. It was a groundbreaking comic at the time. It continues to be a comic that sets the high watermark for a lot of, let's call it strip-style cartooning. Like, there is... I can't think of a Gagatay that has come anywhere close to what Calvin and Hobbes achieved. And I think the work in it of itself stands alone. I'm glad that there are easy and accessible ways that you can access this work, right? You know, like, it's it's easier to get to and experience it. It did make me very nostalgic for comics as an experience in the newspaper. Mm. However, like, when I reflect on that experience, Calvin and Hobbes wasn't the one that stood out within the newspaper. Mm. And I think that's just an artifact of the fact that I am slightly younger than you. So, like, it's really interesting that the publication years are 85 to 95. And I think that time period is going to intersect with different people very differently. So I was born in 84. Mm. So I didn't really get old enough, I think, to appreciate the humor of Calvin and Hobbes until the tail end of the series. Mm. When I was young, I really resonated much more with... My favorite one was Garfield, which isn't (laughs) the better comic. Like, No, but uh, I feel like... For a lot of kids, like I remember a period of time when Garfield was my favorite comic too, and right. there are still kids for whom that's their favorite newspaper comic. Yeah. Right? There's something about it that just oh. resonates with I, a certain age. I had yeah. a Garfield period too, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like it was a little bit more simplistic, and it, that is the comic that really pulled me in. And hmm. it's like that was the one I was excited to read in the comics. I also really liked the Far Side and Real Life Adventures, and like the more off the wall stuff for whatever reason. And I think that was those were the ones that resonated the most with my parents. Hmm. And so I was kind of, like, teasing apart what was funny about this to my parents. Uh, and it wasn't until later on that I came to appreciate Calvin and Hobbes and how different it was from the other strips on the paper and how beautiful and important it was because of that. So it's like I don't have the same kind of nostalgia angle to it, mm-hmm. but Calvin and Hobbes is just, like, unequivocally an amazing comic and really a joy to read. Like, the cartooning the cartooning in the yeah. strip is so <laughs> oh, yeah. fun and so funny and just, oh, it just feels effortlessly beautiful. And it's like, of course, it's not effortless, but it's incredible. Like yeah. th- what Bill Watterson can portray in just a couple of simple gestures. And I will never understand. Like, he looks like someone who has probably the comics in this strip look like someone who has been cartooning for his entire life. And yet he came out of the blue and then left as quickly. <laughs> yeah. It's just bewildering. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. I think this is really interesting, actually, because I'm a little bit older than Jeff. And so I, I don't 
feel as strongly about Calvin and Hobbes as I think he does because <laughs> I was a little older when it started and when it finished I was like graduating from high school that was the year I graduated from high school so at that point I wasn't reading the newspaper for sure uh, I was on to other things I was reading X-Men uh, <laughs> but so yeah I mean I was around to see all of these comics in the newspaper and I definitely liked them they were probably my favorite newspaper comic during those 10 years like after my Garfield phase <laughs> uh, but and I know that kids still read these comics because these volumes have never been out of print but I don't know that they have as much impact now as they did because you can only get them in these volumes. They're not, I don't think they're in the newspaper. And if they are, they're not new. Calvin and Hobbes certainly isn't in the newspaper anymore. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's more of a rarefied phenomenon now rather than being a thing that everyone has seen as it was while it was running in the newspaper. And like when I was... Re- like doing the research for this, I was actually shocked that it had only run for 10 years because it sure didn't feel like 10 years worth of impact. It felt like more than that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I f- it's sort of like I feel like Calvin and Hobbes has been with me my whole life, which, you know, it was, well, a, for significant you, it por- was. a significant portion of it. But, you know, it's like, uh, um, yeah, the 10 years. You Like, it, it's interesting reading this, too, because I... I think I read this as being his sort of goodbye letter, but he keeps talking about the comic in the present tense in the book. And he even sort of talks about, like, moving forward, da-da-da. Like, at the end, it sort of feels almost like, no, I'm going to still make some more comics, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure, like, after this book, he was like, bye. Like It's weird. Well, <laughs> they must have been at about the same time. Like, maybe he hadn't yet decided to retire mm-hmm when this book was when he was writing the passages that are in this book it was published in 95 but that doesn't mean that's when he wrote this right right interesting yeah uh what do you think makes calvin and hobbes so special i'm gonna say that i think it's just the incredible level of skill both in the writing and in the art nothing else in the newspaper in for decades at least has had this level of craft uh, I was it was interesting rereading this like I'm the one who picked this book and I picked it because I knew it had this essay at the start and we could, would have things to talk about but I feel like as uh, as full of craft as this is as incredibly skilled as this is it's like I feel like you could do more with comics if you weren't given the constraints of a newspaper and the fact that he was able to pull this off with those constraints is remarkable. But I, I th- do think it shows its age a little bit. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I mean, I was going to say, I, um, I sort of feel like maybe part of the success of Calvin and Hobbes is just the way he... is a success in premise, because he establishes a very simple premise. You have a boy with a tiger that talks to him possibly imaginary possibly not um and i actually enjoy in the writing here where he goes out of his way to not define that uh relationship like you can look at it as it's an imaginary friend or you can look at it as it's a tiger that comes to life when no one else is around i'm not going to answer that question for you and i really i think that almost is at the root of 
why Calvin and Hobbes works so well because he makes this world that's so simple with like a boy and his tiger and his mom and his dad and then everything else is a lot more amorphous like he doesn't give the he doesn't give the parents names he doesn't do a lot of very specific settings like yes Calvin goes to school but you don't see a lot of the school um most of the like he lives where he has this giant forest in his backyard so a lot of these adventures he's just out in the woods like you you don't have a lot of specificity and so because nothing's very specific it feels very timeless and then he has this great premise of this boy with a overactive imagination so at any point he can shift gears so we can have just calvin having a water balloon fight and then we can have like tracer bullet crime noir and then we can have spaceman spiff and then we can have a tyrannosaurus rex and and then we can just do like a story about his dad like riding his bike (laughs) on the weekend like and all of that works and fits within the framework of the universe and doesn't feel jarring like Mm. and it's yet it's it's broad enough that all of that can fit inside of it and you can tell all these different stories and it still feels like it's part of the same universe yeah, I think, yeah, you've both hit uh, on some really interesting things that make this work so compelling and so... And I, I agree with you, John. I don't think it's 100% timeless, but it is, like, still still seminal. Yes, Let's put it sure. that way. Like, Absolutely. Even looking back um, 20 years later, uh, it still is a remarkably seminal work and, like, has had so much impact in comics. I think... I agree with the fact that it is just at such a high level that it's it just is a feat that has not been repeated. Mm. It's kind of like he set an Olympic world record that no one has been able to match for <laughs> over 20 years. If you think of it that way, right? Like mm. in terms of the the constraints physically just needing to write and produce on that schedule, like the physical constraints are he's like the Miyazaki of strip cartoons, right? Mm. If you mm. think about it that way. But when I reflect on this work and, like, why was it so timeless and why was it so broadly resonating, and it's like, I don't think it actually is, it's not a realistic portrayal of a boy in his imagination. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And when I reflect on Calvin and Hobbes, it's more as if it is a reflection of the inner child. Mm-hmm. So it's like an adult's yeah. inner child because That's Calvin's Calvin's observations, like, he, he seems, like, way more put upon in life than a regular kid <laughs> right. to me you know like right. he he rebels against the drudgery and he feels like he feels like i do sitting in my office doing something that i don't want to do huh. mm-hmm. more than how i reflect on the experience of being a, a child right and i feel like i feel like richard thompson does a better job of capturing the feeling of what it's like to be a kid where like everything is confusing and you're kind of powerless whereas calvin feels a bit detached and it's mm. more like a broad commentary on life mm-hmm. that's interesting mm-hmm. yeah I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, maybe like I, I think it kind of to go back to the the whole idea of Hobbes not being defined. I feel like maybe that is what's at the core of Calvin and Hobbes is that it's about a little boy, but it's not about a little boy. It's like you could, I think, to say that it's a boy. I mean, sorry, and I just said this, but like when mm-hmm. I say it's a boy with an overactive imagination, I almost feel like that's giving it a doing it a disservice. That it's it's this sort of these characters in a in a fantastical place where sometimes we deal with the drudgery of the real world and sometimes we're somewhere else like 
Here's a thought. Here's a thought. What's interesting about Calvin and Hobbes is not only that it has this layer to it, but how well that layer has connected with people. Mm. So, for example, like, compare it to something like Peanuts. Peanuts also has a layer. Peanuts has a lot of melancholy and, like, yeah, like a lot of complexity to it. But if you talk to people about Peanuts, they're just like, oh, man, I just love Snoopy. <laughs> right. I just love that dog. He's so mischievous. <laughs> and, like, the additional layer didn't really connect with people. But hmm. I think it's not true of Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do feel like Peanuts is trying to do the same thing where the children are kind of an avatar of adults. And it's set in this context just to sort of make it the story, to make the story possible. Because nobody wants to read about Charlie Brown going to work at an office. Um, it's much more visually interesting if he's trying to play baseball. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and the, I, the character of Calvin, because he's really the only character, maybe Hobbes as well, but I feel like the the strip is very centric on that character on purpose. Like, every other character only exists to serve the function of building up Calvin as a character and what what he's going through. That character is maybe easier to connect to than Charlie Brown. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe there's something in Calvin that, like I said, similar to the inner child we all hope to reconnect with. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. this kind of spunk. And yeah, it's maybe like... Charlie Brown's just just too melancholy for us to be able to see ourselves in him. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in the right mood. <laughs> I, I think that um, maybe, maybe part of the success with the depiction of Calvin is that... Um, like Calvin's got a lot of layers, right? Like, like there will be a a strip where Calvin's like making a duplicate of himself so that he can like have someone basically be an indentured servant so he doesn't have to clean his room or go to school. But then in the process of that storyline, it's like he has to confront what a jerk he is. <laughs> and, you know, it's like um, they'll have a lot of these stories like he... He'll be having a meeting of gross and, like, harassing poor Susie. But then they'll have, like, a, 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 a strip about, like, him coming across, like, a dead raccoon and, like, having to deal with ideas of mortality. And it's, like, I just think that Calvin kind of runs the gamut. Like, you see Calvin at his best and at his worst. And I think it kind of, as far as, like, the reader maybe imprinting or seeing things in themselves in, in the reading of it, it's like Calvin is such a... Like, he's not he's not good, he's not bad, he's just a person. And I think that that maybe adds to the relatability is you can kind of, like, latch on to the different aspects of Calvin that resonate with you. And he's such a complex character that he has lots of aspects that you can latch on to. I wonder if him being so egocentric is part of what makes him relatable in a strange way, mm. where his ego is so strong that it kind of envelops you, the reader, along with it. Because <laughs> he's like so, he's like, uh, that's the one part of him that's like maybe the least realistic is how e- egocentric he is. But it's also like, that's kind of your inner voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where then, like my story about myself is about me. And it's like, that's what I meant in terms of wanting to be like Calvin. Is a, it's almost a part of wish fulfillment, right? Huh. It's like Calvin is the voice in your head. You know, <laughs> like Calvin is the inner child that you have to continuously stamp down Mm -hmm. and like seeing him live out 
what you want to do like yeah. seeing him like create a box and 100 duplicates and like <laughs> go on these adventures with his tiger and fly through the air in his wagon it's just so yeah. freeing to read yeah. mm. or like you know like go to school and put on a costume and like <laughs> write his test with his super intelligence and like then just walk out of the room take the costume off and pretend like no that wasn't me that was stupendous man like <laughs> It's sort of like we'd all love to do that, but we'd be so mortified by the outcomes we wouldn't. But it's like, it's, yeah, it's like that wish fulfillment of like we think about doing stuff like that, but we just never bring ourselves <laughs> around to actually doing it. And it's probably good that we don't. But yeah, it's like, it's, yeah that's kind of like living vicariously through Calvin. Yeah, or this uh, the one where he can't or he doesn't want to write the report. He slags off on the report <laughs> for like the entire weekend and just like somehow gets away with it, you know, and it's yeah. like that that resistance that procrastination is like <laughs> he leans in so hard to it and uh is something that an adult would never get away with yeah but we i mean like that that initial like ugh, this report uh, can't there be an easier way like that's where we're all like oh man i know i know <laughs> and you read that comic and you're like haha but then we're like well okay time to start that report where yeah. calvin's like bats or bugs <laughs> <laughs> Um, talking about of the about the craft side of things, I ha- I was consistently impressed with how much the strip never became formulaic. Hmm. Like I don't have a lot of experience writing comedy, and I don't have a lot of experience writing really short comic strip sized comics. I have been trying to do a little bit of that lately, which isn't anywhere you can see yet. But the fact that these strips can be so good without falling into repetition is like really impressive to me where like once in a while there'll just be like a strip that is like nothing you've ever seen before and you'll never see it again and it's just like a single row of panels and then there you go that's it (laughs) yeah I mean I I have to say rereading this with the notes I've just really appreciated his notes where he would talk about like oh you know, I tried introducing like an uncle character, but then I found it was limiting for these reasons. And so I abandoned it or like, he'll be like, well, this particular story with the babysitter, I thought worked really well for these reasons. And that's why I'm including it. And these other stories were weak for these reasons. And, you know, so I just really appreciated that he put a lot of thought into the crafting of each strip and into the writing I just, uh, it was like, I really appreciated just the amount of thought that he was putting into this this series. Yeah, it's a mystery to me how, like, I feel that the fact that Bill Watterson cares about the medium, about the craft of cartooning, I think, like, he cares so deeply. He cares maybe too deeply, <laughs> but it really shines through in this work. Right. And it's that's why it's so mysterious that he like appeared and then vanished. Right. Yeah. It's it's well, I think it's going to be a mystery that will yeah. reverberate through comics for many years to come. Well, I mean, just even like I mean, this is one of my favorites is the 160 here. I'll maybe I'll scan it. But like where it, it starts out, and it looks like a Rex Morgan MD comic. Oh, that was my and favorite. Yeah. The joke is that it's him and Susie playing doctor. And it's like the dialogue <laughs> gets ridiculous with like. 
uh, the, it's like an adult man and an adult woman, but they're talking like children, <laughs> and the woman's kicking the man in the shins, <laughs> and then at the last panel is like, oh, it's just two kids pretending. Um, <laughs> but like, he, I mean, it's like he he criticizes himself, saying, well, I didn't do a good job of of, <laughs> of drawing like those uh, dramatic strips. But it's like you look at this, like he could. He could have been doing it, right? Yeah. Um, he really is the Miyazaki of uh, I mean, comic strips if he's that self-critical. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I would say, like, I find it interesting because, like, reading the the letter at the beginning, which we should probably start talking about, but, like, you can tell he cares so much about the medium and the craft, except it seems like, for him, the medium is newspaper strips, period. And it's like, even... I made a note to myself about like one of the strips near the back where Calvin is uh, recapping a superhero comic to Hobbes, and the the essentially the joke is just that it's this hyper violent comic with like sexually exploitive female superheroes, and like the note from Bill Watterson is just like you, know, you can make your superhero a psychopath, you can draw gut splattering violence, you can call it a graphic novel. But comic books are still incredibly stupid. And it just make me it makes me so sad because it's like he has all this passion for this medium that he's doing, and yet he doesn't see any potential in not doing a gag a day and in in and he he deris, derisively refers to the term graphic novel as if that's a bad thing, and it's it's like, to me, he's complaining about all the constraints that the newspaper syndicates put on him. And it's like, I don't want to take him aside and be like, hey, man, you know what you do <laughs> is you self-publish a graphic novel and you do whatever you want. So if you want to do full page watercolor with poems, you could. Or you could do gag a day or, you know, like, it's like as much as I respect his craft and his abilities and his passion, I do feel like it's really short-sighted of him that he sort of put comics in this little box and was like nope this is it like if it doesn't fit in this box it's not good anymore i don't want anything to do with it like i feel like i can understand this if his perspective is the thing that newspaper comics do that nothing else does is quote-unquote everybody reads them they're they show up in your newspaper and then you have immediate access to them. You don't have to go out and find them. You don't have a niche audience. They're for everybody. They're the general public. And like that, maybe that's what he's getting out of it. But at the same time, I do feel like it's... Like, imagine being in 1995 and you're 20 years away from the graphic novel explosion and then just deciding, well, newspapers aren't working. I'm going to quit. And then 20 years later, the graphic novel explosion happens and like, well too late i quit i'm done mm, you know it's a live your truth kind yeah. of situation yeah before we get into sorry finish your thought oh, I, I was just gonna say and then and then just show up and do like three ish three pages of uh, pearls before swine and then walk away again i mean those are <laughs> fantastic pages don't get me wrong <laughs> Uh, Before we get into discussing the essay, which I think is the next logical place to go, I do want to express, hopefully I've made it clear that I have no beef with Calvin and Hobbes as a a piece, but I do have beef with this book. Hmm. And I have beef with this book before I realized that it was published in 1995. So I came into this book kind of, you know, running through my day a little bit too busy. It's 2019. 
I'm like, uh, we're going to do this book for the trade readers. Or, hey, whatever. Like, oh, it's just not available digitally. Right? And it's like, I will get it on Amazon. Right? And it comes into my door. It's in this gigantic package. And I'm like, what the F? Right? And I open it. And it's this book, which you will see before you. Right? And so I, I had it. The story of me is that I live in less than 800 square feet. <laughs> so I have to be very selective. And I'm like, this doesn't even fit in my shelf. What What is this book? Right? And then... I was like, okay, I, I get it. It has to be this big. This Before even opening it, I go through this entire thought process. This book needs to be this big to have the Sunday comics, right? Put at a at a size of what they deserve. And right. like, but if it's going to be this big, I wish it was a nicer edition. I wish it was a hardcover closer to the complete Calvin and Hobbes, which I also can't store in my apartment. Right. Yeah. So then I thought, okay, well, obviously, because it's a floppy book, it's intended more for kids, right? You know, kids take it and they pass it around. And I think it's fantastic. Maybe I'll be able to give this book to one of my colleagues who has young kids and they'll be able to experience Calvin and Hobbes finally. Then I open the book and it has this essay. And I'm like, okay, wait, this (laughs) comic's not for kids. Really, like uh, it, this book is not for kids. It, what is this collection for? And it, it does seem to be like Bill Watterson's last attempt to express what he was trying to do mm. to the adult readers of this comic. Yeah. That's... And I guess, yeah, before we go into that essay, the last thing I want to express is I think it's time for a new edition of Calvin and Hobbes so we can give it to the next generation. Mm. Kind of as he says in this essay, how important it is to have these collections to pass the canon on of these ephemeral newspaper strips. I don't think this is the best book to pass to these kids, even though they're obviously reading it. It's checked out of the library. There's like <laughs> like 20 copies and all of them are in use. That's right. interesting. I, I do feel like, uh, like, again, I'm the one who picked this book. Yeah. But while I was reading it, I wish that I had skipped all the commentary and just read the comics and then maybe gone back and read the commentary after because the comics are so good and the commentary is good for different reasons and it's been so long since I last read Calvin and Hobbes that it was very jarring to sort of be taken in and taken out of this immersive world Hmm. to be like in the in the woods with Calvin like rolling down a hill in a wagon and then suddenly taken back out and like oh I didn't like this strip it didn't work very well it's like I I know that uh, people will care about his commentary I care about his commentary but I would prefer if it was more separate and that's why I'm saying like maybe it's time for a new edition whereas mm. like the the commentary goes so deep into the minutia of what it takes to create a newspaper strip which from a craft of cartooning perspective is kind of an anachronism now. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, it's like that no longer matters. And it's like, I wish there was something where you could just gently frame it for a young reader. This used to come to your door every single day and kind of like bringing to them the experience of, uh, have you have you watched the documentary Stripped? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like Multiple if times. you watch the documentary Stripped, it has this beautiful opening segment, which I feel really describes that experience to the viewer of like, oh, the comics are in the newspaper every day and then just allow the comic to speak for itself. But yeah, that's that's the dream version of Calvin and Hobbes, which I don't know if it exists. Well, I mean, I would just say um, that like of all the available Calvin and Hobbeses, 
we pick the one that is like the director's commentary version. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's like, on me, I think. Like, it's okay. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, sorry. And this is I'll nerd out as the guy who grew up with Calvin Hobbes because the Scholastic editions, like, they would have these little story arcs. So, like, Weirdos from Another Planet was just a linear in order. You read all the black and white dailies, and then the Sunday strips were in order, and it was the story of Calvin going to Mars and meeting the Martians, and there was other storylines at the beginning and the end of that, right? And there's a linear progression in these books. And it, what's interesting to me is that I now after reading this, I realized that when Calvin Hobbes was first being published, it was a square format where you'd have three dailies, one on top of the other. Hmm. And then the Sunday editions were formatted more vertically. This is oh. back when he wasn't allowed to do his own layouts. This is where he had to follow the newspaper um, grid. Um, so the original books, they would restructure the Sundays to be vertical and you'd have a more square format book hmm. and those fit on a bookshelf. Hmm. And then I remember as a kid when the, the next Scholastic came out and it was like this. And even as a child, I was like, what the hell do I do with this? It's all floppy. It's too, it's too long. It doesn't fit on my bookshelf. It's not hardcover. So it's getting curled. And that was just to suit what Bill Watterson thought was the better presentation of his work. And then when he put out the slipcase hardcover thing, it's just a, an enhanced version of this long, long thing that, yeah, it sticks six inches out of my bookshelf. Yeah. And <laughs> like, it's, it's just, it's, I mean, it's beautiful in one regard, but it is also completely cumbersome and it's nothing I could share with my nephew. So See, now, when I bought the ultimate, I'm just going to call it the ultimate edition, the <laughs> ultimate edition Calvin and Hobbes in the, in the hardcover box, I still had all my individual scholastics, and I gave those to my nephew. Okay. The one say... single that I didn't give was what this one. Mean? Okay. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying, like, I think this is more for the adults. And, yeah. And yeah. I, I will say that those other editions, I believe they're also still in print. Okay. Those are still like the around. the essential Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. The, and there's yeah. a commentary yeah. in this of like I named them arbitrarily. Yeah. So <laughs> the complete is complete. The essential <laughs> is maybe yeah. not essential. The indispensable yeah. is uh, arbitrarily yeah. selected. Yeah. And like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the arbitrary Calvin yeah. and Hobbes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, let's talk about uh, some of the commentary. Uh, I have one specific question that maybe we can save till the end, unless it comes up earlier, but. Uh, any thoughts on the the process of working in newspaper comics and the process of Bill Watterson working in newspaper comics specifically? Well, uh, I would just say that um, if any young people are curious why nobody cares about newspaper comics anymore, this essay makes a pretty good case for why the newspaper strips suck now because I mean as a child I remember when on Sunday it was a big deal like it was exciting the newspaper would show up and your parents would pull out this separate booklet that had like a colored border and there was a front page comic that was a full page full eight and a half by eleven page and then every other page was two comics one on top of the other and it was like a little comic book and it was an experience. And like now it's like every comic is maybe three to four panels max. And they're like crammed around the Sudoku puzzle. And it's just sad now. Sun, like the Sunday comics now. And 
reading this and reading like the fights he was having like i think the fact that he had to go to war to be allowed to lay out his page the way he felt like it that's indicative of like a problem in your industry when Hmm. you have a visual medium and you're forcing your artists to like fit this template so that they can like reconfigure the page to whatever suits like the print production like that's a problem right off the bat you know um and it feels like it shouldn't have been a problem even in 1985 where i mean other types of comics in North America and the North American industry weren't doing that great. Like superhero comics were kind of not that great. They were kind of trash and like no one read them. But at least if you were an artist working in that venue, no one would be telling you your page layouts. Mm-hmm. And this was like a, a new thing in newspapers too. Like if you go back even farther in newspaper comics, there weren't these kind of restrictions. Like, artists could do all kinds of crazy things. Well, I, I like that he references Windsor McKay and Crazy Cat. And if you ever look at those books, you're just like, oh, wow. Like, those guys didn't have to follow a template. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really true. It's like a, reading this essay, you can really tell, like, there is no... There, there isn't a set poor, more poorly matched than Bill Watterson and the comic syndicates. Yeah. You know, it's like they they just work. They're at complete odds, mm-hmm. right? They're just completely counter to each other's goals. And it's it's weird that they had to come together to make this. Or like, <laughs> it's weird that I'm trying to like phrase this thought. It's weird that Bill Watterson waded into this. That he was so stuck on the newspaper comic. You know mm. what I mean? Like, yeah. as, as you mentioned later on, like, no, the newspaper comics is the comics. And he was, like, so stuck on that. And yet, like... It was, like, not working out for him. Yeah. yeah it's well, it's and just like, weird it's to me. Like, he, fit, he quits in 1995. He could have done, like, a web version of Calvin and Hobbes where he could have done any layout he felt like. In 95? Uh, well, no, no, but, like, not in 95. But I'm saying, like... Within about five years, yeah, he like, could have launched his own daily on the web and done whatever he felt well, like. like. But he was also loaded after this, yeah, right? Yeah. After 10 years of doing Calvin yeah. and Hobbes, even without merchandising, yeah. he's yeah. set for life. Yeah. So why? <laughs> right. I'm, I'm glad yeah. Bill Waterson is happy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and no, I think sorry. there's... I only meant in terms of like, yeah. if, if, it, if the whole thing is I want to do my layouts the way I want to do them, it's like he was five years away from... A point where you he could have done whatever he felt like. Except it wouldn't be in the newspaper. That's, right. I think that's got to be the key. I think he wants to do things for that audience. He doesn't want to do anything for any other audience. I mean, by 1995, the graphic novel scene was pretty small, but, like, Mouse was around. So, I mean, the potential was there. You could look at it and you could point to it and say, see, you could do what Art Spiegelman is doing. Like, there's potential there. And he was just like, no, that's not my audience. I can't do that. Right. Right. I assume. Yeah. Like, I'm putting words in his mouth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I don't know. It's, uh, I, yeah, I guess this is, this is like the part of me that's just like, I wish Bill Watterson was still making comics. But <laughs> as you say, he's probably very happy watercoloring and just hanging out. And I wish him the best. Yeah. He's uh, probably doing really well. I do. I will say, though, that I don't wish he was still making Calvin and Hobbes. Mm. I think for like the reasons he quit are mysterious. Like his 
he wrote a letter when he quit to say, I'm quitting, blah, blah, blah. And without a whole lot of explanation, basically, I've done what I can. My job is done. Thank you. Goodbye. Something like that. Uh, And I feel like far better to spend 10 years at the top of your game making an amazing comic that will last the centuries and to say at some point I'm going to quit and I'm going to decide that, that I'm going to decide that that time is now then to do what so many other newspaper artists have done and just keep going for decade after decade after decade to keep going when your hand shakes and you can't physically draw the comics anymore or to pass it on to your children who used to be characters in the comic and now they're the one (laughs) making the comic like those are not recipes as much as like these are incredibly talented people I don't think that's the recipe for the best possible comic no and I mean Bill Watterson talks about it himself in here which is like you need to let new cartoonists in or your your industry stagnates. And, and it's like, I'm sure he would have been appalled to know that all the other comics that shared space around Calvin and Hobbes are still there. <laughs> and so he made space for one comic and everyone else is still just hanging in there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's such a weird thing. And it's like, yeah, as I was reflecting on this, this exact concept of like you need to make room for the the people coming up you need to pass this canon to the next generation how many kids growing up today like the six-year-olds of today how many of them have never seen a newspaper you know mm. like uh, they've seen them around yeah but like this experience of having the newspaper come to your house and sitting around and reading it is um foreign to a lot of them i think i was like i spent a lot of time around kids and i would say that anytime i do like occasionally i'll do like an informal poll like what kind of comics do you read and a surprising number of kids do still read comics in newspapers like way more than i would have expected and i assume it's only kids whose parents happen to get a newspaper and that number has got to be shrinking so I mean those numbers are going down and like these kids aren't going to ever have a newspaper uh, subscription but the the numbers aren't at zero yet okay interesting thank you for that Hmm. cultural update (laughs) (laughs) I do think that kids who have access to graphic novels are generally way more excited about them than about newspaper comics. Even the, the kids who, like, Garfield is their favorite comic, I'm pretty sure they're reading Garfield in, like, the graphic novel collection. They're waiting for the trades. They're waiting yeah. for the trades. Yeah. But, like, I mean, why wouldn't you? I don't know if you've heard <laughs> about graphic novels, but if you're interested in an interesting sample of, like, all the great graphic novels that are out there, you should check out the trade winners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, got a lot of, we've got a lot to pick from. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, it's 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 just kind of a cultural shift, right? I mean, I feel it's sort of like uh, Sunday comics in a way are the same as like the, you know, TV shows from the '80s that led up to these commercial breaks. Like, as like you watch sitcom, them, you yeah. watch them ad free online, and you're like, why did everything build to a tension point after the first 15 minutes, and then de-escalate down, and then build up again for another 15 minutes? It's like, oh, because they we had to get you to the commercial break. And then we're acting like we're recapping what just happened because clearly you haven't just seen this stuff a minute ago. You've had this time now to digest that first 15 <laughs> minutes. And now we gotta we got to remind you what just happened. And like now you've got Netflix where the whole premise is like, well, obviously you're just going to watch like eight hours of the show, like back to back. Yeah, the binge watch is an, it's a 
a really interesting shift in the mm. medium of television, mm-hmm. which we could talk for hours about. But I, mean, like, but, <laughs> but, I mean, I think that relates a little bit to uh, comics. Like, I mean, Calvin and Hobbes was this, these little bite-sized comics that you experienced one every week or a little, like, four-panel strip a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it was doled out in these little tiny portions. It wasn't designed to be this... Like, Bill Watterson wasn't imagining a giant hardcover book on a table that some kid was going to pour over. He was imagining it as these little little nuggets that would come out with a newspaper. That experience is not dead. Mm. That experience has just changed. Mm. So, like, uh, I spent a long time in webcomics. Like, webcomics very much was about that relationship that you had with the readers. You were producing content on a regular basis, and they would check in to follow along with your work like that was a a similar kind of bite-sized experience and now i've noticed it move very much into webtoon yes webtoon where it's on your mobile phone and it just like pings you and it's like oh now it's time to experience this little bite-sized bite-sized thing of this thing i'm following so i think the the bite-sized aspect still exists it's just like it's changing a lot Mm. and it's changing quickly and it's going to be interesting to see where it goes like a, a lot of newspaper comics quote-unquote newspaper comics have readerships exclusively online as well mm-hmm. where they, the syndicates have their own websites where like all the comics managed by the syndicate are on the site and you go to the site and you can catch up on your latest comics. You could check every day if you want and there'll be a new comic. So that's interesting too. Uh, all right, I have a question here that I want to ask because before we run out of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm framing this as a question because I think I know what my answers would be but I'm not sure... Like, I, w- I want to get some, some input, mm-hmm. some feedback on this. Okay. So part of the essay at the start of this book is about licensing. And uh, famously, going to come up. Famously, Calvin and Hobbes has never been licensed for anything other than these books. I, I wonder if maybe even getting these books made was a push at the start. <laughs> um, but thank goodness that uh, they did, because otherwise it would be all be gone and forgotten. Yeah. Um, but anyways... So he goes through, um, Bill Watterson goes through his reasons for not wanting to license Calvin and Hobbes uh, and the fight he had to go through because he signed a contract saying he would and then he didn't want to and his syndicate didn't want to piss him off and he threatened to quit if they did license everything. And so anyways, um, part of this, I'm going to read this. It says, uh, the world of a comic strip is much more fragile than most people realize or will admit. Believable characters are hard to develop and easy to destroy. When a cartoonist licenses his characters, his voice is co-opted by the business concerns of toy makers, television producers, and advertisers. The cartoonist's job is no longer to be an original thinker. His job is to keep his characters profitable. The characters become celebrities, endorsing companies and products, avoiding controversy, and saying whatever someone will pay them to say. At that point, the strip has no soul. With its integrity gone, a strip loses its deeper significance. So I have, I guess, two questions about that. One is, do you think his plan was successful? Do you think that your perception of Calvin and Hobbes as characters would be different if there were five Calvin and Hobbes movies and plush toys and stickers and everything else? Um, I think it would have changed things. Uh, I think when he makes the observation of, like, I had no interest in a toy company answering the question of Hobbes' reality by producing Hobbes plushies, um, I I sort of see where he's coming from. That being said, I mean, I've seen a lot of Calvin and Hobbes bootleg merchandise. I've seen people who stitch their own Hobbes dolls together, and 
I don't think that detracts, but then I think it, it also is different. It's different when it's somebody making this stuff uh, out of an act of, of love of the characters. They're bootlegging it because they just love it. Um, it's a little different than like when you go to a Dairy Queen and like all the Peanuts characters are like, buy a McFlo- you know, or, sorry, buy a, uh, a new Sunday we're offering. Like it, it does, it does feel a little odd when like your cartoon characters are selling you stuff versus um, just telling you a story. And I think that considering his approach to the strip, I can see why he sees that as as affecting the timelessness or the whatever it is he was trying to go for with with Calvin and Hobbes. I think that the values that Bill Watterson holds about the integrity of this work and the integrity of maintaining Calvin and Hobbes uh, as characters are valid. I think that that should be the right of the artist to decide what their boundary is, right? You know, it's like I've definitely encountered this within my own work. It's like I've noticed that while I don't hold as strong a stance with like no merchandising ever, especially when I was writing Autobio, there were boundaries of what I was willing to put like my literal face on, you know? And it's like that's that should be the the discretion of the artist. That being said, when you reread that passage, it was really interesting to me because it recalled kind of what we're going through right now with cartooning and meme culture and the ownership of the artist and like taking an image and co-opting it for some nebulous purpose, Mm. right? You know, it's very often that a meme image will get removed from its original context and twisted to mean something else. And that is removed from the control of the artist. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like it, it does remove the soul. Mm, of like the Pepe, work. Pepe the Frog. Pepe is a huge example. The one that calls to mind for me is Question Hound, which is the This is Fine Dog. Oh, oh. yeah. Question Hound has a canon of his own, you know? Like, he was a pre-existing character in Casey Green's work. And, like, uh, when you take This is Fine out of the context of the rest of the comic, it's different. Mm, you know, then, it's yeah. not that it's necessarily diluted to the point of, like, I think it still evokes something that obviously resonates, mm-hmm. but it still does remove it from mm-hmm. Casey Green's artistic voice and artistic vision. Yeah, and I think as someone who has only seen the meme and hasn't read the comic it's from, I think if I went back and read that comic, my perception of it would be very different than if I came to it cold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, sort of like in a way, Bill Watterson avoided that by sort of he shut everything down before the internet really took off so you don't see his work being as co-opted uh but i mean at the same time he wouldn't have any control at this point yeah. if someone wanted to co i mean well this is the I, the uh calvin peeing on uh, was just reference on that. the back of track which he does reference in here yeah. so that's a meme yeah and like he didn't have any defense against that right but he sort of kind of questions like maybe if i had like licensed some things that this would have stamped out that I don't think it would have I think people mm. would have had that bootleg sticker regardless yeah I'm yeah. not so sure it's impossible to say this is true uh, I mean, so then I guess my you're... second part of this was I was going to ask like I, I think you're right Angela that it's the right of the artist to decide how and when their work gets licensed and I think that's the only uh, ethical approach. So I'm just curious 
where would you draw your line? Like where, uh, from your perspective of your work, uh, I don't think any of us would necessarily draw the line in exactly the same place as Bill Watterson. I'm just curious, where would you put your line? Hmm. That's yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I I I I would say that I think Bill Watterson is maybe. I mean, I think at the time period he was probably more correct. I would say in 2018, the idea that you would completely lose your character to a TV producer or toy manufacturer isn't necessarily true like i think you know they're like you look at say like todd mcfarlane who took all of his creative ideas and made a toy company where he was like making toys to his own standard his own spec and this is his his vision now turned into a toy to his quality standards um and he controlled that and i think when we we've dealt with um a lot of uh, the comics we've covered have been adapted into movies and TV series and like, I mean, I Kill Giants the writer was involved in the production of that movie so, I mean, I think that if you want to you can be an active participant in the licensing of your work and you can have that control you can carry the same like you won't be able to micromanage it quite the same way on the page, but you can definitely have influence on how your characters are represented in other medium if you want to put in that work. And I definitely would, I mean, there's definitely going to be like a lot of work that I wouldn't want to do. And so maybe for that reason, I would have some boundaries of just like, oh, it's just not worth the stress. But like, I mean, for example, if um, like I read, um, Fortune and Glory by Brian Michael Bendis about his comic getting optioned for film and with each of his books being optioned he was given the opportunity to write the first draft of the script and if I was offered a chance to like adapt one of my works into like a screenplay for a movie I would probably if I was allowed to write at least the first draft and maybe be involved in that development I would say yes if they were like we just want to take this character and run with it and you just sit on the sidelines then no I wouldn't so I mean a lot of it would be I'd have a lot of questions before I could answer some of these things I mean if it was stuff that I'm producing if I was producing my own merch like making t-shirts of my characters like I'm overseeing that then I would be okay with that but maybe handing that off to someone else I might not be as comfortable so I mean really it's about how much control I would get what do you think John? Okay, I famously hate movies, which is not entirely true. I watch lots of movies, but I don't. I haven't seen uh, enough good movie adaptations of things that I like that I would trust anyone in Hollywood to adapt something I'd written as a movie. Um, so I think that would be my limit. That and. I definitely wouldn't want an adaptation to be made of something that I haven't finished. Like if it's a multi-volume series and I haven't finished the ending yet, I don't think anybody, including myself, should be trying to turn that into something else because that's not the whole story yet. You don't want HBO to write the ending to your epic series? Um, Like I think lots of other things might be on the table. It would depend on what it was. Uh, Like I don't, I think t-shirts are cool. I like t-shirts. But, uh, and I don't know, other adaptations in other media, even maybe, I just, I don't like 
the I don't think Hollywood anyone in Hollywood would have the same goals as I would. Uh, I have different opinions about different works hmm. that I've made. So to me, it's very work specific. Uh, I have very clear answers about wasted talent because I went through that, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, and I discovered those very clear boundaries. Uh, I was willing to put an image of myself on a mug. That was probably the farthest I was willing to go. So a limited edition mug quantity 100. That was it. Uh, all, uh, I'm totally happy to create books. Uh, prints are fine. I did not want to make t-shirts with my likeness or the likeness of anyone in the comic. Hmm. Those are real people. Mm -hmm. Those are myself. And mm -hmm. it was just too weird. Same thing with plushes. Too weird. Stickers. No. So I've never made a sticker of myself with the exception of the highly pixelated version that's barely even a picture of me. <laughs> so like until it got really, really, really abstract, I wasn't comfortable doing it. The stuff that I merchandised from Wasted Talent was a lot more one-off and abstract and cartoony. Like the bee, like the, I just drew a weird looking bee one day. And because it was so removed from my life, I was very comfortable making merchandise of that bee. I made a USB stick. I made a bunch of stickers. Like I made... If I thought I could have sold some plushes, I think it would have made a super cute plush. Uh, I made a pin of Cloudsy. I would not have made a pin of any of my other characters. Like, I just wouldn't be into it. So, like, that was very cut and dry. I think I would be more flexible with a work of fiction. I think I would be thrilled to see that into a toy. I think that would be really cool. Prints and posters and stickers, I'd be pretty fine with that. Unless if the character had, like, a really dark story. You know, it's like, mm. I feel like if there was something really tragic or really personal about it, I wouldn't want it cheapened with merchandise. I would want that to stay holistic. And if I were going to create merchandise, I would make it something ancillary, like the bee or the logo or something like that. Movies I'm kind of ambivalent about. I feel like, yeah, if they're going to make a, I don't think it's ever going to happen, <laughs> a movie adaptation of something that I've made, I would consider it something distinct. Okay. And it's like, I would be, if I get to the point it's like it would have to be up to the people who are involved and if i can trust those people i will leave it to them and let them do whatever they want and consider it a work distinct from my work okay all right we are quickly running out of time yeah. so uh let's do shout outs so yeah i'm uh jeff ellis you can find my work at uh eastfancomic.com and i'm gonna endorse uh stitches by david small uh i just read this as part of a graphic novels course I'm taking at Capilano University and it's a really great really good comic book R really quick read it only took me like a day I'm Jonathan uh, you can find my work at phobos-comic.com uh, and I'm going to shout out the only newspaper comic I c that's currently happening that I care about which is Nancy by Olivia James <laughs> as much as we just spent over an hour talking about how keeping a comic running forever is a bad idea this is the one exception. <laughs> New Nancy is fantastic, and it's the version of Nancy that should always have been. Can confirm. My shout-out's a little weird. Uh, we always thank the Vancouver Public Library for allowing us to record in their space, but shout-out to the new roof. The roof's finally open, and I didn't even know this for the two years that they were making the roof. They have, like, two new floors up on the top of EPL. There's, like, a huge gallery space. There's these gigantic like fields of beautiful study and reading nooks new meeting rooms if you're a vancouver local check it out and i also learned another tip from a friend 
on the VPL app, it's pretty easy to search and add uh, a book to your personal shelf, which is not requesting it. So it's like you can put a hold on a book, but you can also just have like a list of books. And my friend was telling me whenever someone recommends a book, he just adds it to that list and then just goes through and places a hold. And when he comes, when the book comes available, he just gets it. Calvin and Hobbes has 10 copies of this, uh, whatever 10th anniversary book available at VPL. So add it on the app, place a hold. And when it comes up, you can read it. There we go. Yeah. Love it. Okay. I have a piece of art in that gallery right now. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know how long. I think it's still up. I don't know how long it was supposed to stay up for. <laughs> uh, all right. That's it. Uh, oh, our next book. Is Come Prima by Alfred. Uh, the Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Thank you.